evening, everyone. You can <clears throat> tell by how, how well my nano is going by how often I podcast during November. <clears throat> and y'all notice that? Anyways, um, tonight we're going to talk about serial work and episodes. Jilly picked out the question. We were both bored. Um, obviously, neither one of us were writing. Um, I'm going to put her on the phone. I'm in the midst of eating my sandwich because I forgot to eat my second meal with my medication because I'm crazy. <laughs> I um, I managed to skip, I guess, dinner, maybe lunch too. No, I skipped something. I haven't eaten. It's hard to, it's hard to eat when you're not hungry. Yeah. Nah, sometimes uh, that's the effect of blah. It's like meh. I just don't care. I'm getting a bit at the chat room. Yeah, we do have a topic. It's oh, it's about serial work. Ugh. Does your poet ask an actual question? When you have a large fanfic plot, how do you know when you should break the idea up into a series and what's the best way to break an idea into more than one story? You don't know how close I came to putting a bowl of cereal on the podcast art. <laughs> I came real close. <laughs> Hmm. No one needs those kind of puns right now. <laughs> um, you know, part of it, there's, I think there's a lot of different things that factor into um, when you break up a work. And um, I know there's a lot of times like we're looking at, we'll see a story ideas come across you know, whether it's through rough trade or whatever, especially the when we do July and we have short stories, it's not uncommon for us to be like, that That story, that plot sounds really interesting, but that is a lot of plot for a short story. Um, but outside of short stories, which sometimes it's easier to tell when you've got a lot of plot for a short story, sometimes you've got a lot of plot for a novel. And I think that that's one of the first things you have to look at if, about whether or not this is a series or a single work is are there a bunch of major serial plot points? Um, major meaning there's going to be rising action to that point, falling action afterwards. Because, I mean, we've all read that fan fiction work that is like up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. It's a million words long, and it's really about eight different stories. Um, and if you're doing that, if you're climbing that peak multiple times and coming back down and climbing it and coming back down, you've got more than one work on your hand, hands. Um, I mean, that's kind of the basic structure of a novel, right, is that you, you, in some fashion, get to a climax, and then there's some falling action of some duration, and then you that should be the end. But a lot of fan fiction works aren't like that. They just... It, it is like sandwiching multiple novels together. That it, that can be very hard to pick out, though. Um, I know our our, um, our our person who asked the question doesn't poet. She's talked about in the past that she's a just like like a pantser by nature who's trying to learn to plot at least some, maybe be a hybrid person. And she's I do think hybrid's probably a good space based upon some of the things that we've discussed before. 
But sometimes when you're a pantser, you don't know that you've got multiple works until you trip over where you should stop. And if you're a pantser, I would say that, that you, you, you need to be open to listening to that. I guess it's sort of like a, listening to that in your story, that your story is done. Um, Hmm. Sorry, you were climbing and I got distracted by the sound of music. (laughs) The sound of music? You were climbing mountains. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) The puns are never going to end today. only sing in my car. But sometimes... That's not true. That's a big old damn lie. Sometimes when I'm thinking about a story, I'll walk around my office and I'll be listening to music and I'll sing while I do it. My husband has caught me more than once. I'm I'm prone to humming a lot when I get really <laughs> when I'm in a really creative moment. But I, I don't really, but singing no, I I don't go there. No one needs that. <laughs> Nobody needs that negativity in their life. Um. <laughs> Not even you. <laughs> um, there are also there are some other things like even if you think you've got one idea, there can be some other indications that it might be a. Um, well, if the if the idea is really big, like like epically large, the question you I think there's multiple questions here is how do I know if it's more than one story which could be a two-parter, a, a story and a, and a sequel. It could be you've got a, a, a series of novellas. But if you're just looking at kind of two separate ideas that sort of flesh out the same basic character's arc, that's like two novels or two novellas or something, that's different from you've got, you know, a million words of idea. Um, and that's probably where I would go more towards episodes. Unless you're writing... Um, unless you're Lord of the writing Ring. original work, and then yeah, if you're writing original work, I would try to figure out how to structure that as a series of novels. If your idea spans, if you know your idea has that much breadth. But for me, other things like if it, go ahead, sorry. Oh, for me, I go into a story. In my idea stages, I think about um, how I want to present. Um, and I, yeah, I made mistakes. Um, I've I've chosen the wrong presentation or I've chosen the wrong format before. Um, and, but I try to start out, okay, how, how do I want to structure this? And when I went into Sentinels of Atlantis, I wanted to basically... Um, write a TV show. Mm-hmm. And so I structured the episodes like I was writing novelizations of episodes. When I look at the structure of a novel, a novel itself is a complete idea with a theme a series of events that meet that theme and an overall character arc with an an episode series 
you have multiple character arcs. Um, or even a novella series, you can have multiple character arcs. You have a lot of room for character arcs. So if you have a, a very large cast of characters and you want to fully explore more than one set of characters or more than one relationship or more than one internal or external motivation point for characters, then you're setting yourself up to write a series of novellas like Ties That Bind or a series of episodes like Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond or The Sentinels of Atlantis. Um, Because um, that isn't the kind of work you can put into a novel. While Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond could read as a novel, I think it would be a very jarring experience. The Sentinels of Atlantis could not read as a novel. If You'd be climbing every mountain. Original, yeah. If you were if it were original work, you would have to um, definitely break it up into novellas because, and I think that's another thing that I see that is fairly unique to fan fiction. That I think that if you want like better craft, that's worth paying attention to, is like what you mentioned about point of view. And, and when you talk about multiple character arcs, you're talking also about multiple points of view. And throwing in more than a couple of main points of view in a novel is a really is not a good idea. There are, it is rare that I've ever read a professional work where four, five, six points of view were was a good thing. Um, and even then, it's kind of has, a. There, unusual experience. You're like, mm, I don't know how I feel about this. A lot of times you'll, you'll yeah, come out of a redeeming experience like that kind of conflicted about what you've just done <laughs> and and not know yeah. why. It's, it's not what you... One of the things about most novels, especially in fiction, um, there are some differences. There, Genre can make a difference about how many points of view you should have. If you're Especially specifically if you're writing in... Um, I would say urban fantasy, most paranormal, um, romance. I mean, there's, there's a lot of the big genres. You you need to have your point of view confined because to some to, to some degree, and again, this varies a little bit by genre. There needs to be a strong character arc, or two character arcs. And when you start throwing in a billion points of view, your your character arc gets lost. Um, and you're watering the, down the narrative. Yeah, your you're, your you're audience watering doesn't down get. The strength of your narrative. <clears throat> I agree. The, the, the audience doesn't get that. Um, intimacy. They don't build that intimacy with your character when you have a billion points of view. And I see that in fan fiction in a way I don't see. In terms of in terms of like percentage of books, like if you talk about the percentage of books that have more than two or three points of view. And you compare it to the number of fan, the amount of fan fiction. I would say, fan fiction, you know, it, to he, to like some order of magnitude more than you see in in, in professional work. It it is a um, it's a crutch that inexperienced writers pick up. I think for how to tell their stories because they're not sure how to do some things without putting in another character. And giving them a point of view, and it is jarring, and it's, unco- it's uncomfortable. And um, 
even when you're watching a TV show, you don't typically get more than a couple of points of view. Now, the point of view is um, it's, a, it's more of an objective than a subjective point of view, but you're still typically only seeing what's going on with your main characters and maybe what's going on with your bad guy or whatever, protagonist, antagonist kind of points of view. Um, but you don't, you're, you're not seeing um, the action of, of random witnesses. You're not seeing, you're not really spending time with them at, from their perspective outside of the key event. And when you, but when you get into fan fiction, all of a sudden you'll have every chapter is a different point of view, and sometimes multiple points of view in a single chapter, and sometimes a character exists for one scene in a story, and that scene is told from their point of view. And that is a strange artifact of, of fan fiction that I pretty much don't see anywhere else. And, I, and it, it's another one of those viral behaviors we talked about um, mm-hmm. that get picked up. But the reason why that's relevant to the discussion about this is that when you need that, when you feel like you need multiple points of view because you have more than one character arc, because a character arc, like a character having a whole arc and a whole story of their own, warrants a point of view. But that is where you might consider serial work. I mean, and, and Settles of Atlantis is, a, is a, a beautiful example of that. So Thank you. Um, different, different episodes allow you to focus on different characters and what's going on with them without watering down, as you said, the narrative of the other episodes. So you can move in and look, in, and look into what's going on with Bates in, in an episode. And you can lay foundation for that in another episode, but you don't really give him a point of view. But then in his episode, the episode that focuses on the resolution of those events that have been kind of sprinkled throughout the series, that is where he has a point of view. And if you know you need that, if you know you need multiple points of view like that, I would strongly suggest if you're writing fan fiction that you work on structuring that as episodes, TV series kind of thing. What I know is not exactly um, prevalent in fandom. When I first started doing it, I I didn't notice anybody else doing it. I I really don't pay attention to a whole bunch of different fandoms. But my readers were kind of like, what? (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) So just, just, just hang on. Bear with me. You'll like it. <laughs> so, um, and it can be daunting to do something that's not particularly popular in fandom that readers um, don't expect. So, you know, it's something to be prepared for. But one reason why I encourage the episode challenge is just to um, introduce you to a different kind of structure that allows you to um, put together a work um, in smaller sections so it's not as daunting. If I was still, if, if I had put Sentinels of Atlantis, the first season, into a novel, I would still be writing it, and you guys might have two excerpts on EAD. <laughs> yeah. So, because it also boils down to productivity and, and a sense of accomplishment and building a series like that with five or 10K episodes is really rewarding. There you feel very productive. I think that, 
I think any author can produce 100K episodically faster than they can produce it as a novel. It's a very relaxed kind of pace. Mm-hmm. But it does require planning. It can't be – I'm not saying you have to plot every episode up front, but you have to have at least some idea of what it is you're trying to accomplish. Um, because you honestly, if you don't have some notion of a plan, you don't know that you need uh, an episode. I mean, if you're a pantser, okay, so if you're a pantser and you're trying to, this is your thing, one of the things I would recommend is, well, for starters, this is advice strictly for pantsers who do not post their works in progress. If you post post your works in progress, unless you're willing to pull them down, this is really not good advice for you. But if you just want to pants it and see how it comes out, yeah, sit down and write it. Your zero draft might get chopped to hell because you'll be in there going, you get to the end and you go, I feel like I suffered from not having another point of view. I feel like this character arc needs to be developed better. I feel like I missed out on this subplot because I wasn't in this person's point of view. I feel like just dealing with it next position was kind of ooky. And then you take what you've got and you chop it up and you basically are doing a significant rewrite to break into episodes. I, I don't know any other way for someone who cannot, can't do some planning to figure it out. It's they have to get to the end and then go, okay, now what did I do and what do I need to do to fix it? And there are people who write like that. There are, there are published authors who write like that. Their zero draft is a hot mess. And then they go back and they fill in all the stuff that panthers have to do. And back to this point, panthers have to do all the same stuff plotters do. They just have to do it at the end. They have to do it eventually. You have to, you have to write up your character bio for consistency. You have to make note of your timeline. You know, if you're doing it as you go or at the end, it's still the same work. It's just you do it later. So, but there are a lot of authors who write like that. They don't know where they're going when they start. They get to the end, and then they have a monster edit on their hand that is a bigger edit, frankly, than what a plotter has. Because a plotter and doesn't work on I would think it'd be really overwhelming as well. Like, oh, fuck, I can't. <laughs> Just walk away. <laughs> I think most, most planters I know, people who write kind of, by, you know, write, write and then get to the end of that zero draft and just start beating it up. If they're successful and they haven't abandoned writing over this whole thing, it is just part of their process that they and they also usually have somebody they work with who re, who alpha reads the fuck out of that zero draft and tells them what's wrong with it. And they have to have a really thick skin because there's going to be a lot wrong with it. And then they're going to have to go in and do the monster edit from hell. And if they get a good product, it doesn't matter how they got there. If they're happy with the what how how it came out, but it's a very different method. A plotter could figure out maybe figure out up front that they're going to have. I mean, I've I plot, but I've still had a couple of times when I've gotten into the writing, and this usually happens to me in a rough trade. It doesn't usually happen to me with stories I'm writing. Um, on you know outside of challenge, um, and I'll explain why in a second, but um. If plotters are going to look and they're going to go, okay, I, I know I need all of this and here's my planning and da 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 da, um, 
and they know it, they're going to need episodes or they know they're going to need a series of short stories or they know they're going to need um, a, a series of novellas or they know it's going to be a four-novel four novel series or three-novel series or whatever shakes your tree. They know that's what, what it's going to look like. Okay. Now, what happens with me during rough trade and why I get kind of blindsided by changes in plan during rough trade is because I plot the story, but I resist doing a lot of stuff I do for other projects because it is getting too into the story and I can murder my, my interest in writing on it if I don't write on it. You know, it's sort of like if I'm interested enough to get in and do really intricate work on a story, on the plot side of the story, I am going to want to write it. And not working on it can ruin my ability to work on it later. So it's sort of a don't tease myself too much with it sort of thing. So it's like my plots going into rough trade are often rougher than what they are for projects I do outside of rough trade. Um, so what happens and this happened to me in April, is I start writing and go, okay, I started at the wrong spot. I need to back up. And I am going to basically tell. And so this, the, for, with the Leomoto, it became a question of point of view um, that the entire first story wasn't even going to exist. It was going to exist in, a, in like a two-page you know, exposition explaining how we got to where we were. But then I'm like, that just that like guts the emotional impact of the story, because so I decided that I needed to write not what I'd planned, but write something else. So I quickly plotted. Well, I already had it plotted, but it was all backstory. So I decided to write the backstory is what I decided to do. Um, and as I'm writing that, the whole thing is coming out from one point of view. Well, there's going to come a point where it's of necessity I have to have I have to have a point of view change. But you can't write 80k in one point of view and then add a point of view. That is no. weird. I'm telling you people that right now. If you do that, stop it. Yes, I've got I my had that, I judgment have, on. I had that problem in the end of my quantum bang where I wanted to put a scene in. Um, I had two POV characters in in, in my quantum bang and. Um, because um, the story is about them, it's about their arc, about their changes, about um, their actions and how their actions ripple out through um, the entire um, story. And but there's a scene I wanted to add, and it was a big plot point for me. Um, but it could not be told from either point of view of my characters that I had picked. It could it it could have been, but it would have been awkward and weird. <laughs> so I it had. To- it would have been contrived. It would have felt contrived. Yes. I had to cut the scene. Um, because it was either that or have my main POV character, like, spy on his his lover um, to witness this. And that seemed shady. Um, and I don't think the conversation would have happened with him there. Um, because it's not... it. Later on, when my shit is published next year... Y'all come back to me, and we'll talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll do we'll do a post more, and then do, you'll understand. I'm gonna do 15 podcasts about my quantum bang. <laughs> I just I can't <laughs> after it's published. Um, but I want to bring up something that Mary said in the chat room. Mary said the Michael, the J. Michael Straczynski method rather than the Star Trek method. Um, and the J. Michael Straczynski wrote Babylon Five. Um, the main creator for Babylon 5, and I'm not, I'm not sure if he had other writers 
in um, his writing team or if it was just him. I, I would have to look. But he plotted the overall arc of Babylon 5 from beginning to end, including the six movies. Um, all of it is interconnected and woven into this ginormous, beautiful story. And when I plotted Sentinels of Atlantis, I um, I had him in the back of my mind because I wanted my story to have that epic feel that Babylon 5 does. Babylon 5 <coughs> has very few Monster of the Week episodes. There is a rare moment in Babylon 5 that you can afford to miss because it um, it tells you a story from the moment the credits open into the very last scene you see. And it kind of blooms. And I wanted, I wanted Sentinels of Atlantis to bloom. And I wanted it to have, I wanted each episode to be contained. And I wanted my seasons to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. But I also wanted my series to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Like Babylon 5. Babylon 5 is a huge, huge accomplishment for all the writers that were involved um, and, and J. Michael Straczynski, amazing. It is just from the storytelling point of view, some of the, um, the, uh, the aesthetics don't hold up. Okay. But it's currently on uh, Amazon prime. So you can watch it for free. If you have, a, if, if, if you're a prime member and I really recommend it because it is a masterclass in tell in in storytelling on TV and we rarely get that like with Star Trek they were they were it's a very episodic series but the episodes were rarely ever um connected and the payoff was short you know but there's some things that happened in the first season of Babylon 5 that we didn't get the payoff until the movie <laughs> I mean, it was just like come on now <laughs> tell us show us the shadows I want to see the shadows in that big metal suit. Why won't you tell me, J. Michael? <laughs> I want to see the Vorlons. It was all I wanted. <laughs> I wanted to see the Vorlons. <laughs> um, but I watched Babylon 5 after it had been on TV. My husband's a big fan. And we binge watched. And he arranged it. For me, so that when I watched it, I didn't watch it in the order that it was aired. I ordered it, um, he ordered it with the movies and the um, episodes so that I saw it as one big continuous giant story. So he inserted movies here and there, and you know, so I, I watched it in chronological order versus how it was made and aired. With nice. the movies and the episodes. And so it was just huge. I would come home every day from work, and we would get situated, and I'd watch, and I'd watch, and I'd watch. And I was just like, I was enthralled with his story, um, with their storytelling, because it was stunning. Um, and you don't see that shit on TV anymore. Except for probably Game of Thrones, but that comes from novels. And I don't watch Game of Thrones because it's rapey. Um, and I don't watch Outlander because it's rapey. Um, you know. 
Um, but I assume that both Outlander and Game of Thrones have that vibe because they come from a series of books. Yeah. Oh, Veer and his and, and his dream come true. Oh, it's amazing. I waved with him when it happened. When Veer's dream came <laughs> true, I waved with him with my little fingers. So I have little hands, and my and my husband busted out laughing. He was like, <laughs> "Leave the room!" I was like, "You're ruining our moment. Veer and I are having a moment." <laughs> Don't mess with this beautiful moment. Um, and I think that I do think that when you're telling an episode thing, that you do want to go for that kind of vibe. That you, well, not. I'm sorry. I need to. Re, I need to take that back because you may not want to. You actually may want to do a series of Monster of the Week. I mean, and that if you've got like an interesting set of characters and you're going to do a monster of the week type thing, I don't mean literal monsters. If somebody doesn't know what that, where that term comes from, please let me know and I'll explain. Um, Might want to for the audience who can't ask questions because they're, you know, okay. our audience. Okay. Yeah. So with X-Files and I'm, and I'm sure the term probably originated before X-Files, but it was definitely a term that was a big thing with them is they had two types of episodes. You had myth arc episodes, which was the canon, which is where you're establishing the, the mythology of the show. And then there were Monster of the Week episodes. And that was the terminology people use. It's like, what kind of episode is it this week? Is it Monster of the Week or, or mythology? And you, if you, you, people had lists of what the myth arc episodes were, so that if you wanted to catch up on the show by looking at just the, 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 the arc, the mythology of it, what episodes you needed to watch. Um, and most of the show's episodes, I think, were monster of the week which is that it was two exiled agents out there dealing with whatever weird thing was happening in the world and typically it was some kind of weird monster and they were dealing with it and um monster of the week wasn't just monsters though it was you know things like the chaco chicken ranch it's just it's like the most horrifying thing that's ever been put on tv um and um and so that's where the term comes from it means that you are not you're not you're not you're that episode is not about the show's canon, the show's mythology. Most it's not furthering the drama, plot of the of the show. Right. Of the show. Most procedural crime dramas are in that monster of the week, bad guy of the week kind of thing. They they don't have a typical um there aren't episodes that, you know, you really need to see to understand what's going on with the show's plot. Um, there are some exceptions. Some stories do have a building arc. Some 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 procedural crime dramas do have a an arc they build, but I would say most of them don't. Um, One of the more interesting order, things about that, when it when when it does happen, when when you do have a series of connected episodes, they stand out in your brain, like um, the miniature killer in CSI, um, the grave digger in Bones. Mhm. Um, uh, the airy arc in NCIS. Yep. I agree. These are these are arcs that really stand out for you. Um, Borg. Uh, Locutus in um, 
in Next Generation when Picard becomes a Borg, um, those episodes kind of gel in your brain, like they're because they're they're really impactful. Um, but you're and right, a lot they of times it's just they they also weren't just relevant for that one season. The Borg stuff came up over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. It went into the movies. It was a thread that they pulled for a long time. And stories that are like that, that the episodes that are like that, that establish part of a plot that put in a mythology or a canon or whatever, they can pull those threads and keep coming back to it. Now, NCIS was like one of the worst shows for her. They would establish stuff and kind of like tug on those threads a little bit and then just abandon it. And it would be like, where's the follow-through? Um, but some, but some, some procedural crime dramas were pretty dedicated to being, you know, monster of the week, bad guy of the week. Law and Order, as a franchise, with a couple of exceptions, was very much every episode stands on its own. Sometimes they have a two-parter episode, but basically, you didn't need to know anything about Law and Order to watch Law and Order. Law and um, Order, um, but Law and Order Criminal Intent stood out for that, and I think it boils down to Vincent D'Onofrio's. Um, um, standout performance as um, yeah. Bobby Gorin. Gorin. Yeah. Ed um, something. It's like he's just, there. You got to do something with him. That's just. Yeah, because you just don't put somebody like that on TV and not give them some meat. <laughs> yeah. You got to give them a character arc. That's just craziness. Um, <sighs> so, but if that's that, what you that if that's what super talented. At, if that's what you excel at, you know. It don't feel like that you need to weave some masterful large larger plot because that's something that we're talking about. You could build a world of episodes where you take your fan fiction character, whoever that might be, and every episode is a story where they're in a new situation, fighting the bad guys, solving a crime, whatever it is that your fandom's about. And then it comes to a conclusion, and that's the end, and you pick up the next. And if you want to lay groundwork for a plot for a piece, you know, that's fine. But you could do that. You could have no overarching arc and just have connected connected episodes. Because, you know, and there is precedent for shows that are like that. Um, like Law & Order is the perfect example of, you know, the Law & Order, Law & Order SCU. SCU tried to have some character arc that they pulled through a little bit, but they didn't typically, with a couple, with a couple of exceptions, they didn't typically have plot arcs that they right. tugged on. Um, but Law and Order was a very long-running, long-standing franchise. Um, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of episodes, and you could pick any one of them randomly and watch it and not be confused. Because that was, that was, what they, that was their, their niche. That's what they were doing, was bad guy of the week. Um, I think it's actually a you, very entertaining format because you don't have to invest yourself in keeping track of a whole bunch of details and you can sit down. Like one of the best things about Law & Order when it's on TNT is if you're bored, you can sit down and watch murder for four hours and there's no stress. You don't have to remember anything, you know. You haven't watched an episode in two decades, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> and that's the beauty yeah, I, of law and order. You don't you don't need to know anything, you won't be confused, you'll just watch a procedural crime drama. 
first half is about catching the bad guy, and the second half, then they had a formula. The first half, they catch the bad guy. It's the law part. The second half is the about putting the bad guy in jail. It's the court part, the order. That's their formula. It was set. It was very successful. People liked that they weren't penalized for missing an episode. I there miss shows where I missed the original episodes. Law and Order. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, you might as well just give it up. Yeah, you, <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, my God, I missed an episode. How am I going to see it? Ugh. Does anybody have this recorded? You remember we've been around with your friends uh, who, yeah. had, who had stuff on videotape? Do, did you, do you have this on tape? I, I, uh. Did you record it? Please tell me I believe you're recording yet. But if you've got characters you're comfortable with and you've got lots of ideas for things that they could do, you could write a serial like that, you know, The Continuing Adventures of the Avenger, you know, and go write. And and because you're writing episodically, you don't have to focus on one character all the time. And it's better craft to do it that way than to have try to write it as some big novel that just kind of comes off as schizophrenic. And that's what happens when you have too many points of view is it comes off the, – the tone feels a little schizo. It's like, what's going on here? Now, unless you're writing like third-person omniscient, but I, I have yet to see a fan fiction writer I thought had mastered third-person omniscient. And I'm going to be real honest. It's rare that I see a professional writer who's mastered it. It always – Always, Nora, I love you, looks like a hot mess. It's a head-hopping hot mess. I love you, Nora. I do. The times where I think third-person omniscient comes off the best is where the narrator themselves is a character in the story. And the perfect example of that is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, The narrator, the guidebook, knows everything. They are omniscient. And they have a completely different tone than any of the other characters. But where the characters all have a tone in their own dialogue and they have ways they act, the narrator, the narration part of the story is always consistent. It's always that sort of witty, snarky, dry humor of that narrator. Um, And I really think that's really the only way to compartmentalize omniscient point of view is you have to kind of develop in your own head, even if you don't disclose who it is, a character for the narrator. It, you have to be because, careful with, with an omniscient point of view, especially ugh, a first-person omniscient point of view. I've seen that, and it comes off arrogant, and, <laughs> and you want to kill people. Um, I, I didn't even think comes, that was a thing. You just kind of freaked me out. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. You see a lot of it in um, in first person writing. Um, really inexperienced writers fall into it, um, not on purpose. They 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 fall into it, and suddenly their first person POV character knows what everybody's thinking and everybody says, and um, knows things that happened when they weren't around. Um, and they've literally turned their character into God. Um, and you're like, no. Look, you can say, um, I watched his face flush red. But unless he's vocalizing and glaring, you don't know if that flush is embarrassment or anger or hurt. You don't have the ability to see inside somebody's emotional landscape 
um, in the narrative to tell them, unless they're giving you more than just flushed cheeks. Right. It could be high you blood say, pressure. He stared. He glared at me. That okay? I th- I'm pretty sure he's angry. He's angry at somebody. It might not be me, but he's currently glaring at me. <laughs> so. But yeah, I've seen it. And it's also that same writer that falls into second person and then it acts like it's a thing. Oh, that's just my voice. Fuck you. No, it's not. It's just sloppy writing is what it is. It's bad um, crap. People like to do that. Is they have shitty crap. They didn't want to take the time to learn what they were supposed to do. And when you could call somebody on it, they go, that's my voice. No, it's not. It's nobody's voice. That's why we've defined what second-person point of view is, and you can't mix it with third-person. Stop it. You're never getting published with that those shenanigans. Oh, I'll just go publish it myself. Well, go, you look forward you go ahead to a bunch and do of that. one-star reviews. Um, I want to talk about that for a second. Um, when you um, – there, there is a very important thing that happens in publishing, um, and, um, and that is your relationship with your readers and um, name recognition. And – your first time out of the gate, it's like you're making a first impression. And if you put out a book that you self-published and barely edited, um, and you put your name on it, um, it's going to make an impression that you might not appreciate. Now, I'm going to give an example, and we're not going to do any bashing, but I want you to think about it. Would you pick up a book by E.L. James and take it to the counter at Barnes & Noble and buy it? No. Hmm. I mean, setting aside the content issues, okay? So I'm set that aside because I can't talk about the content without going crazy. Right, off the the rails. Um, Yeah, we already had that moment. I did anyway. It was, Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think I think I was there with you, but I, our, yeah. it might have been Lady holding the phone. And I was bashing from the chat room. Um, <laughs> the um, bashing loudly from the chat room. Um, it was, even though I didn't read the book, I did read some excerpts here and there, and it was well documented how badly edited it was. Um, and not everybody. Yeah, I, edited. Most, I would say sample off my Kindle. Yeah, most most. I would say most writers probably are not great editors, okay? But, um, and that's not, it's not necessarily, um, I do think there are some things any writer should over time be improving in, and if they're not, I, I really start to question what's going on with them. But there's just, some of this, it is easy to, I'll reverse that. If you are growing a tree, like you're like you know how they grow those special trees that have special shapes and I don't know what it's called where they sort of you know tie them in position or whatever. Anyway, you, you spent a lot of time nurturing this tree, okay? Your word tree. Um, I wasn't thinking about bonsai. I was thinking about something else, but it's sort of like bonsai. Um, but it's like constant nurturing. It's constant care, and you build it. It is that is the hard part is getting that tree. Standing across a field and pointing out that one of the branches needs to be trimmed is the easy part, okay? And no one expects an author to have that level of objectivity about their own work. 
because they have spent sometimes years with this tree baby and um or word tree word tree we'll call word tree with their little word topiary thank you um they spent years with this word tree thing and then some, if it's professional, some stranger, some person they don't know, will probably never know, stands across the field and tells them everything's wrong with it. And it is like being gutted. But it is completely understandable that an obvious flaw isn't obvious to the person standing right next to it. So when I say most authors are not good editors, that is not a bash on most authors. It is just, I don't, I can't, I don't think I have a great objectivity about my own work. I'm a great editor and a great writer. I'm just not a great editor of my own work. So I have this thing. I have this thing called comma blindness, um, and I've been I've been writing for a very long time. Um, I'm a, to be perfectly honest, uh, at my uh, probably in about two weeks it will be. No, no. Um, I would say probably around. April of next year will be the 30th anniversary of me completing my first novel. Wow. So, and it was uh, about 300 pages typed, double-spaced, on a brother typewriter. Um, Okay, so so it's established I've been writing for a very long time. And I know where commas are supposed to go. I actually did very well in English class. I can diagram them. I can diagram a sentence like a motherfucker. But let me tell you something. When it comes to my own work, I never put commas in the right place unless it's dialogue. <laughs> so I got to the point where I don't put any commas at all. And then I'll let Grammarly tell me where to put commas and I hope for the best. <laughs> Which is a much safer bet than the randomness that a lot of people do. No commas are better than badly. From a readability perspective, it is profoundly true that no commas are better than badly placed commas. A, a, so a badly placed comma can thought, change the whole structure, meaning of your sentence. Because even if you think it's not that bad, I there. It is not true. A comma that is in an incredibly wrong place, your mind goes, why is that break there? What is this trying to say? You will stop. Even if you aren't a nitpicky about commas, you will stop. And you'll go, what? I don't get it. And like putting a comma in the middle of an independent clause, it's like, why is that comma there? I'm going to the comma store. Are you addressing it? I don't understand. What your clauses? I'm I'm good with clauses. I'm terrible about putting commas in compound sentences, um, and that's really unfortunate since I tend to favor a compound sentence. Um, structurally, as part of my voice, I'd say you would say that I do tend to favor a compound sentence, um, and uh, so yeah, I always fuck that up. Um. Someone mentioned comma splices. Comma splices are not comma splices are when you put two independent clauses together with a comma rather than with a comma and a and a in a, a coordinating conjunction like and or 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 but or so. Um, so when you do that, that is technically it's called a comma splice, and that's what you're doing. You're splicing two two separate sentences together with a comma. 
which is not grammatical. So basically a comma plus is failing at a compound sentence? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's well, it, it's just, I mean, you're off by one word, right? You're not using the conjunction. And, and the rules of English say when you put two independent clauses together, um, you join them with a comma and either – two independent clauses are either joined with a comma and a coordinating conjunction or with a semicolon. You can use a semicolon to join two, but the semicolon implies a tighter relationship than the comma and the coordinating conjunction. So it, 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 that's where it gets into nuance, but, it, but the thing is of – of the badly placed commas in the world, the comma splice is not going to trip your reader up. It's, I mean, you know you do comma splices. If you know you do comma splices and you see them, you should be able to fix it and stop yourself. Um, that's just, a, that's a, I feel like sometimes with authors that's a choice. They just want to keep their comma splices. But it's still readable. When you put that comma in the middle of a phrase where there is no break and there should be no break, which I just sometimes, it's, like, it's almost like random comma. It's like, what is that? Because the comma splice should be there. That comma belongs there. It's just you're missing a conjunction. So people still read just fine. The comma splice is still highly readable. It's wrong, but it's readable. <laughs> Random commas, place commas, not readable, which is why it's better to not have it. If you're guessing, does this need a comma or not, leave it out. And so, on a professional note, um, most professional editors do not like and do not want a semicolon. They are faster to remove a semicolon from your work than they are an adverb. <laughs> I let them go. I had I had somebody that used a lot of them. Um, and if there was a very tight relationship between the two clauses, I mean very tight, I would let it go, but only to a point. Because the thing is, when people start noticing that you use semicolons, you use them too much. You're using too many. It's the same thing with adverbs. If you, if you if your reader is constantly adverb adverb adverb, you're using too many. All things in moderation. Yeah. yeah. Except chocolate and sex. So. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'll put that on the table. when it comes to when it comes to to. To edit to, to editing, I guess we've talked about most authors are not good editors of their own work, and we're talking about would you read E.L. James? E.L. James did not; she chose not to really put anything into having that work edited when she published it. I, what I find to almost be the bigger crime in that, I mean, it's it's is it when it got popular and a major publisher picked it up, they didn't edit it either. They weren't allowed to edit it. It was part of her contract that they could not edit her work. It was also part of her contract that she had final say over every single word of the scripts for the movies. And see, from a, if it that's what I heard. Okay, I'm not saying that's fact. That's what I heard. It makes a lot of sense. And though. that kind of that kind of hubris is just I don't I don't get it. Most publishers give the author the final say over the content. An editor can suggest, with a couple of exceptions, an, ex- an editor can suggest 
that you change certain things in the content, but if you really, really, really don't want to, unless it's part of your contract that you will make that change, for the most part, you don't have to. I think authors should take on board the criticism, the feedback, and and consider making the change, but some don't want to make the change. I've I've been there with uh, this. This would be better if you change this. I don't want to change it. All right, then <laughs> off it goes. Um, it will just continue to suck way. from my point of view. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And sometimes, sometimes it's a minor thing. Like you know, I'll suggest that something has a little bit. This is affecting your pace in a negative way. I, I would recommend you change it. And the author doesn't want to. It's like okay. Uh, most readers, if they're into the story, a minor pacing problem they're probably not going to they're going to notice it but they're not going to get bent out of shape about it but some things like big red herrings that don't go anywhere you know big plot points that don't ever go anywhere it's like but i found this fascinating and i want to keep it in yeah but it doesn't go anywhere but i find it fascinating and i want to keep it in yeah but it doesn't go anywhere <laughs> and you know at some point they want to keep it in and it's going to stay in and their readers are going to notice well they're going to be going well what about well it's great because it didn't go anywhere so but that's that's where you know Author vanity. Um, that is where author vanity comes in, and it is a factor in what the final work is beyond um, beyond editing. So, but when it comes to just the basics, the excerpts that I saw of 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 her work was badly edited. This has nothing to do with the content; it was badly edited. She chose not to continue to. She continued to choose, no matter how much money that story made. She continued to choose not to have that story edited. And as a result, I don't care if she was the best writer. I don't care if she wrote it was something that was every trope I loved in a unique and fresh way. I wouldn't read it. But especially when it comes to professional works, I have, to me, I feel like that there is an implied contract with something from a professional publisher about a standard of editing. And when it's not there... I feel like my trust has been broken and violated in a really terrible way. And it's one of the reasons why I have such a bias against self-published works is because quality. there's no no standard on quality. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes an author went out, they hired a professional editor, they paid attention, they got their work up, and you wouldn't know that it was self-published. And there's an author out there who... I looked, I checked, she didn't appear to be self-published. And so I tried it, and, and this editing was terrible. I mean, commas were all in the wrong place. I mean, I get like, I got like, yeah, I don't know, four or five pages in. It's a hot mess. I'm like, what the fuck? And I do a little bit of digging, and the only, the only publisher that this publisher has is her. It, it's her, she's self-publishing, she created a publishing house to publish her own work. Which is actually a very I mean, common thing to do. A lot of um, authors are encouraged to create an LLC to put their writing uh, income under, and that usually involves a personal press or a personal publisher um, So because it becomes a writing business. So that makes sense from a tax point of view. Um, but if you're going to self-publish, if you don't want to taint, and this is the whole point of this conversation, if you don't want to taint your name, and destroy your potential audience, you will be very careful with your works that come out of the gate. Because your name recognition is everything. And if you've done all this work to build up this pen name, and then you put out four or five projects that are absolute shit, 
then you have to start over. And I mean start over. You have to get a new pen name, get a new website, get a new Twitter, get a new Facebook page, build up your audience again, and hope you don't make the same fucking mistake that you did the first time. Uh, that was a little soapbox. Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm 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 right with you on that soapbox, and I don't really have any intention of climbing off of it. Um, it's a big soapbox. We got room. Anybody yeah. else want to stay up here with us? I just you know, be careful with your name. You invest a lot in your um, non diplume, your pseudonym. You invest a lot of time and thought and work into it. And as much as you respect your own work. You must respect the name you put on it. And that's why uh, just, uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain level of self-publishing that I don't have a problem with. And it, 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 it comes down like this. Um, there are a lot of writers who are my age and older who are getting their old catalog back from publishers Um you know, old Harlequin releases, old money, you know, old titles that are no longer in, in print. And they're putting their um, their backlist onto Amazon and onto Nook um, through their own publishing because these are works they previously had published. They're, they're, they're self-publishing their backlist because it's no longer in print, which is perfectly reasonable and fine to do. That's work that's already been edited. Um it has an audience that you, you you put out a new book and they might want your backlist. So if your backlist isn't available anywhere for them to buy, your your audience is screwed. So yes, if you've got a huge catalog of, of books that were published in the 80s and 90s, um, you might want to do some work on them, especially if they're historical so you're not putting out a whole bunch of fic that young-ish readers will see as rapey. <laughs> <laughs> because that has yeah. changed. You know, in the 80s and 90s, you could put out a pirate romance where the uh, the pirate kidnaps a girl off a ship and t- tosses her in his cabin and then he makes her want him. <laughs> I mean, that's just what it, and what that boils down to is forced seduction, which is no such fucking thing. It's right. Right, but that's not how it was written, and it's not how it was couched, and it was definitely not how it was um, sexy capture pirate ship, you know. And so there's a lot of those. Um, so if you if you have work from back then that you want to put out for a new audience, you need to to update your work a little bit to show um, um, the modern reader that uh, the the stories you have in in a light they can accept them. <clears throat> It is nice to see yeah. an old favorite writer put their backlist into ebooks. You're like, yay! <laughs> it is. It, it can it can be so exciting because you're like, oh my god, yes, it, there it is. Look at that. I really wanted that. Put it on my Kindle. Oh, I forgot about this scene. <laughs> oh, you never. I forgot you did this. Oh shit. Oh, okay. Click, click. <laughs> Let me get past that. <laughs> uh. Because 
things that you read in your teens, you, I think a lot of times the subtext went over my head, and I'll be like, oh, shit. <laughs> what? Oh, yeah, yeah. There there were, like, favorite authors from when I was younger that I go back and read now, and I'm like, oh, my God, why did I think that was so good? I, right? I'm, I'm a little bit. I'm a little bit dismayed here. Actually, a lot dismayed. It, it, it can be very um, upsetting to to have, you know, in your mind you've been going, this is like the best thing I've ever read, and then you go to read it, and you're like, oh, my God, what the hell? What the fuck was I thinking? Oh, my God. That, you want to go back to your That really is not the best thing I've say, ever read. That's not sexy. <laughs> that's that's rapey that's as fuck. <laughs> It's rapey as fuck. What is the matter with you? <laughs> but um, well, that thought went right out of my head. It was just like it was there and it was like one and done. Bye, gone. Um, but yeah, letting yourself, get, letting your, being edited is not an easy thing, I'm sure, for anybody. Um I think the first time, I, mean, I think my first experiences with editing were all technical publications, which there is, it probably inured me a little bit to the whole process, but it's also less emotionally traumatic because if someone says this isn't clear or this is badly phrased or whatever, I'm like, I don't give a fuck. I'll rewrite it. Okay. Um, you know, you don't like the way I did it? Fine, I'll redo it. Um, or sometimes I argue with somebody and go, you really don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Um, <laughs> and that is a thing that, that, that happens more often than you think is that somebody, you know, it fails to take into account what, who, what the audience is or, or whatever. Um, but, you know, I mean, the, some of the first writing I ever did professionally um, you get a whole team of people tearing it apart. I don't like this. I don't like that. I want this different. Oh, there you go. But I understand it's not easy to be to be to get edited. Um, and I think sometimes I wonder sometimes that more and more people are self-publishing, not because it's difficult. I, I mean, it is difficult to get your book published with a professional publisher. I'm not saying that that's an easy thing to do. That's very difficult. But I sometimes wonder if people just don't want to have to take any feedback. They just don't want to have to take on board making any changes. It's like, well, this is the way I wrote it. I'm going to put it out. I don't care if you like it or not. Right. I um, agree. Um, and a there, publisher there writes an element. There, um, um, there is an element in the professional community of, of writers who don't think they should be edited, who are perfectly content to throw a first draft at their publisher or a second draft at their publisher and say, oh, here you go, here you go, thank you. And then get upset when they get edited or um, throw a fit and refuse to do edits. You know, are you you sure? I had this lady in my writing group and she submitted her second draft to um, her publisher. She was under contract. So this was a book she wrote on spec. Uh, and so um, the publisher uh, sends, the editor sends it back with um, a lot of changes requested. And she refused to do the changes. Reprinted it, sent it back to the editor. 
and she thought everything was fine until four months later when the publisher served her with a lawsuit. Wow. Yeah, that was about a decade ago. She no longer publishes professionally. Well, she self-publishes um, um, the entire advance on her three-book deal. Um, this was her second book. Uh, and um, they dropped her whole catalog. Uh, she had like, there was a second book in that deal, but she had like nine books with that publisher. Um, and she just reached the point where she thought she was above editing. Now, in this second draft, she didn't even do her own grammar check. There were misspellings in it. I saw it. It's like, and, dude, that actually, that really annoys me when I get something that has, it's obvious spell check hasn't been run because that word doesn't exist. It's not that it's a case right? of confusers. And the thing is, every time I bitch about spell check, there's inevitably somebody who comments who says some kind of thing like, oh, well, it won't catch when you use the wrong word. I never said it would. I never said it would. But when I open up a document from somebody that's full of red lines underneath it, because I turn on spell checker when I'm looking at somebody else's work, and it's full of things red lined underneath them, it, it actually it infuriates me. It infuriates me. I'm like, why the fuck are you sending me something that hasn't spell checked? And I don't mean an alpha read. You know, if somebody sends me an alpha read, I don't care what they're done with it. But if somebody's sending me something to edit or beta and it's got misspellings in it, the next time somebody talks about using a spell checker, please do not trot out the excuse of confused words. We all know. Because it's not confused <laughs> words. It's words that don't actually fucking exist. Um, they're not Harry in the damn says, dictionary. I would say that some amateur writers think that hiring a professional editor is a waste of money or a scam. I have also heard people who honestly believe that somehow editing takes away from their pure, sacred inspiration. <laughs> kind of like thinking that you don't need a coach, but you want to participate in the Olympics. That's exactly what it's like. It's, now, see, there are editing services out there. They're scams. It's just like there are housing, publishing houses like Publish America. I'm not even sure if it still exists, where you pay to be published, which is bullshit. Um, um, but that is a form of self-publishing that's very popular and they say they have editing but it's not true um, uh, they provide you shit cover art and say oh here you know, here's, um, here's what you get for your $500 or, or whatever they're, um, they're charging these days for that shit um, I am not saying that you need to hire a professional editor in order to submit your work to a publisher I'm not. I don't. I do the best I can with my work. When I'm sending in to a publisher, I send them my third and final draft. It has been spell checked. I have used words checker on it. I have printed it out and done a physical edit. Because a lot of times when you look at a physical, um, your work printed, you will see things that you would not see on your computer screen. The change of venue will open up your mistakes. And then I do Grammarly, um, and I do a final review, and I make all the changes necessary, and then I send it off. With the knowledge, having done all that crap work that I've just done, that I will also go through line edit, content edit, and proofing. <laughs> because Rarely that's just ever, the way it works. It works. 
I rarely, if ever, argue with an editor when it comes to content, unless you know, they tell me I can't use the word cunt, and I'm going to use the word cunt to the day I die. C U N T. I want to. If, if I was getting buried, I'd ask you to put it on my tombstone. Also, cock. They never complain about cock. It's very internalized misogyny. Anyways, <clears throat> um, but an editor's job is to make your work fit the publisher house, fit their guidelines, fit their style guide, publisher's expectations, and give your work a final polish. It's not personal to them. They don't know you and they don't care. <laughs> Truly. They also honestly don't care to know you. Because <laughs> that's not what it's about. That's why you should never um, edit your friends for real. Like beta and alpha is one thing. But to do a hardcore edit on somebody, um, that's the kind of thing that can ruin a friendship. Because there are things that an editor could say to me that I would be like, yeah, okay, I get it, I'm sorry. That if one of my friends said to me, I'd be like, fuck you, what? <laughs> okay, what now? Uh, how could you what? say that to me? <laughs> of course it's contrived, I plotted it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding, but no. I mean, if you uh, see, I've been, I've been, I've been doing it for a long time, and I don't take edits personally. There was a time when I did. I remember the first time I got edited, I cried like a baby. I was so upset. I was like, "Why did they tell you I work it? They hate it so much. Oh my god, I'm gonna die. They hate it. They didn't hate it. I was just really bad <laughs> at grammar, <laughs> but it was just one big red mess. <laughs> but um, well, yeah. Um, line editing, can, the funny thing is emotionally, it's weird. It, the stuff that you think is going to be hard, um, content editing is when somebody tells you what's wrong with your story. And to me, that is the harder thing. If somebody says, this needs to be changed, the scene needs to go, this has too much of this, that, or the other, whatever. Um, but Emote, but for, for weirdly, people if people who need a lot of line editing, which is just nitpicking your commas and and that kind of thing, it, it can be very. They get back this red mess, and they're traumatized as fuck. And it's like, why are you freaking out about some commas? I don't get it. They're like, oh my god, I'm never gonna get to this. Like, it's commas. Would you just accept them and move on? <laughs> Calm down. You haven't. I'm right. You're wrong. Yet. Here's a screenshot of the Chicago Style Manual. Stop being a baby. But no, I don't argue about commas. Sometimes I'll fight to keep an adverb. Um, and I love my semicolons, but I give them up. Um, no matter how long you write, no matter how many times you get published, I don't care if you've got five books published or one book published or 50 books published. Um, you need editing. And being an awful edit will damage you professionally. If you're a prima donna in editing, it will get spread around to other publishers, and they won't want to work with you. Um, well, so, yeah, some publishers will drop you like a hot potato if like, you boom done. Bye, see ya, bye, Felicia. Especially, to, I know some of the bigger publishing houses, where especially like the acquisition editors who are out there deciding what lines they want to pick up and are sourcing specific kinds of content and stuff. You piss them off, you are not. 
getting back with that publishing house. Unless they change over their entire acquisitions department and the new one loses their no list. Because if you think these companies <laughs> don't keep a, keep a list of people who piss them off, you're crazy because they do. Name, oh, they real do. name, pen name, email, IP address if they've got it. <laughs> They're keeping track of your ass. And if you show your ass, it, like if you submit something and um, it's not a fit for the company and they reject it with a with a, with a a standard, you know, formula rejection and you pitch back all bitchy and say, well, you're wrong and you're stupid because my book is awesome and you don't know good shit when you see it and I'm going to publish it and it'll be number one on Amazon. You just wait and see. They've put you on a list. And if it's email, they probably put you on a list that puts all your email in the trash. So good fucking Never luck. to be heard from again. It is hard to get out of the slush pile. When you do get out of the slush pile, you act like a fucking lady. That goes for the boys, too. <laughs> That's right, gentlemen. Act like a lady. <laughs> All y'all act like a fucking lady. I mean it. <laughs> you know, and the thing is, I'm just guys from the editor side of the desk. There are, um, if you think I don't tell my boss when somebody gives me a hard time, you are sadly mistaken. <laughs> but I also tell my boss when somebody's a dream. Like the last right. book I edited, the author was an absolute dream to deal with. He was delightful. I like not like I got to know him in any kind of meaningful way because I don't because I don't I don't I don't like make contact with authors like that. But he was he was I wish every author I worked with was like that. Very professional. Um, wasn't taking things personally. Very open to discussing changes. Um, when he didn't want to make something, he actually gave me good reasons for why he didn't want to change something, <laughs> which was like astonishing. He's like, I don't really want to make this change, and this is why. And I'm like, holy crap. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> Look okay. at you. Like you want to pat his head. Good author. It's good author. Good it, it wasn't just a, either passive aggressive or a temper tantrum. He gave me reasons. Oh my god, what am I going to do with myself? <laughs> Holy shit! He didn't even mansplain. What am I going to do with myself? Um, that's really amazing. But uh, yeah, you know, so. Like, like I said, just just act, just act like a lady. You know, ask yourself: Would Michelle Obama send this crappy email? And if she wouldn't, don't. <laughs> That's right. What would Michelle Obama do? Ask yourself that, because <laughs> that's a lady right there. <clears throat> Fierce, graceful under pressure, beautiful. Inside. She's beautiful inside. So, you know, you just ask yourself, what what would Michelle do? Yeah, Michelle totally adulted the whole eight years. And she's still out there adulting because it's not like they left her alone just because she moved out of the White House. Um, right? Well, 
but there are a lot, but there are, and also it's not just editors who give feedback, right? I mean, I know there are publishers who give feedback to authors who say an author submits, no, this doesn't really meet what we need because of this, or this is what you would need to change to be published here. And authors lose their minds. They lose their minds. And I understand rejection isn't easy, but that actually, if somebody is taking the time to tell you why what you sent them wasn't a fit, that you would not be grateful for that and stop and pay attention is crazy to me. It is crazy because usually rejection is just a form letter, right? It's just a form response of we're not interested in this at this time. But, I mean, I have seen authors go off the deep end when they actually got some feedback from either the acquisitions editor or the publisher um, about why this book wasn't acceptable for them. And usually it's really correctable stuff, but they just lose their shit and go, I'm going to self-publish. These publishers don't know what they're talking about. Really? They don't know what they're talking about? The big them compared to the one you who can't get their book published, they're the ones who don't know what they're talking about? Okay. If your book has been rejected 200 times, it might be you. It might be you. Now, I'm sure there are some incredible novels running around out there in slush piles. And a lot of times, if they're keep submitting and keep getting rejected and it's incredible is probably because of the first chapter. If an editor, if the acquisitions editor can't get fast past the first chapter, it, it doesn't matter how good your novel is. A lot of story, and the fan fiction has the same problem. Fan fiction mirrors and amplifies the problems in original fiction, right? Is the first chapter, it has a fail to, this can start in an interesting way. So if somebody tells you that they don't find that they didn't find your opening chapter to be interesting and they got so far as to actually read it, they didn't just like reject it based on concept or something, she'd take that to heart and go, Okay, here's a professional in the industry telling me that I need to work on my first chapter. Make it more interesting. Go make it more interesting. Quit bitching. Yeah. One of the worst things, I had a friend do this, and um, I, I told her not to do it. I told her repeatedly not to do it. She did it anyway, um, and she got an email um, telling her not to do that. <laughs> so what she did was she submitted her story, and it got rejected. And four hours after rejection, she made all the changes she thought she had to make to it and resubmitted it to the same publisher. Four hours. Four hours. It gets, it gets rejected again. She takes a whole day this time. Resubmits it. Gets a very pointed email from the publisher. The publisher doesn't actually exist anymore. They were not a business. Um, telling her that she was not welcome to submit to them ever again. At no point did she email them and ask them, what she could do to make this project better because she was just getting a form letter rejection. She wasn't getting a request for changes. That's just crazy. Take the no, ladies and gentlemen, take the no. But like, you know, Mary said in the in the chat room, if they're actually taking the time to tell you something about your story, about what's wrong with it, to be pissed off about that, 
And it may not be anything wrong with it, actually. It could be this is why it doesn't fit our line. And if you really want to be in that line, then you're going to have to make changes. And if you really want it the way it is, you need to find a different line. It's sort of like present, you know, um, sending something with no graphic sexual content to an, to an erotica publisher, right? They might reject it and say your language is not explicit enough and there's no explicit sex. Well, or sending mad, urban fantasy to a um, romance publisher um, and then get mad when you get rejected. Because what? Submitting a mystery as a suspense. If you don't know the difference between a mystery and a suspense, you've got no business writing either one. Just saying. If they take the time to explain to you why you're not a fit, either don't get mad. For starters, be flattered. They took the time to explain to you why it's not a fit. Um, and either make the changes to the fit in more than four hours. Because I wouldn't take anybody seriously. If something only needed four hours of work, it wouldn't have been rejected. <laughs> Um, what they would do if they saw that much promise is they would say, if you make these changes, we'll talk about a contract, but whatever. Anyway, right. Um, if they're telling you, if you want to be, if you want to, if you want to make, you know, take the time, make the corrections, say, and then send them back and send them back with a cover letter that you've taken their feedback on board and you, you think that you have meet their, met their line standards and you'll hope that they'll reconsider you. Um, Thank you. Thank you for the time and move on. But to just like, and especially folks, don't go onto Facebook and Twitter and um, Tumblr and bitch about the publisher who rejected you by name. Are you stupid? And if you think the publishers don't find out about that stuff, you're crazy. All the crazy. Worried about you crazy. We're going to call your mom and get you an evaluation kind of crazy. Um, I'm, I'm joking, but I'm also serious. You don't want to treat um, publishers and editors, acquisitions editors and agents um, with any sort of personal. Um, don't make it personal. Uh, don't try to engage them in conversation like you know them. Um, when you send them letters or emails, don't address them by their first name. Uh, they're not your friend. Uh, they're a professional working in a professional environment, and they like to be treated that way. And also, the next time you bitches email me, I expect you to to to, to title your email, Mrs. Marcos. <laughs> I want respect from my authority. Or I could do without the religious propaganda. I've got four today. Oh, my God. Really? Yeah. Four. Yeah. Ugh. We, can, we, we, should, we can circle back to length. It kind of got off into publishing. But I wanted to mention something that came up recently in a conversation with somebody. A trope and a cliche are not the same thing. Odds are, if you're writing a book, a story, whatever, you're exploring a trope. Um, some cliches are really enjoyable. We really find that entertaining. But in general, it's not. When somebody says that's a cliche, they don't mean it in a complimentary way. Um, 
so <laughs> um, it came up because somebody was somebody had gotten some feedback from somebody about um, that they hate seeing tropes and cliches in in somebody's work, and if they're not for starters. I I haven't ever read a fan fan fiction novel, or, or I have, can't think of the last time I read an original novel that didn't have tropes in it. Right, because tropes are just themes. They're just right. popular themes. And tropes, like I said before, the they're like seven fucking stories to tell and an infinite way to tell them. Right. So, And in that infinite way to tell them, there are themes that are common in those stories to tell. And uh, and tropes actually can be, you know, too many tropes can feel start to feel a little like, um, you know, everything in the kitchen sink kind of syndrome, you know. And we, you know that when you get into a story, it's like, why does this feel like it's got everything thrown in it? That's too many tropes, Right. Um, right. It could be other things, but there's there's an odd there's a solid chance that you've got too many tropes. Cliche is the way you approach a trope. It's the way you approach how something is handled. Um, actually, every example that just popped into my head would have been singling somebody out, and I don't want to do that. Um, but if 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 Fifteen people approach a trope the exact same way. Okay, so let's say, and let's say sometimes new tropes emerge, right? Like a really good idea. Okay, so I'll tell you one of my favorite emerging tropes um, is um, um, Claire Watson came up with this with Claudia as a tree. Um, I love it too. This is it, for her. It was a plot device. That's where she started. It was a plot point. It, in my mind, it's become a trope because like tree Claudia forever, right? So. Um, if lots of people go out and explore the idea of Claudia being connected to a tree, that becomes a trope about Claudia being a tree. The way in which the story utilizes that trope can either be unique or it can start to feel like a cliché. Now, Claire did this with a brilliant story she wrote called All In, um, where there's a zombie apocalypse and they ultimately travel back in time. Um, that I was love original. it. Claire did the original thing. It was it was amazing. It was a great story. If you have not read All In, even if, I don't like zombie stories. I kind of kicked myself in the ass a little bit on this one because it sounded appealing, but I don't really like zombie stories. So like it sat in my read list for like over a year, maybe longer. And finally one day I went, oh, okay, I'm going to read that story. It just, I really want to read this time travel story. I'll just deal with the zombies. Um, and it was it was stunning. It was great. So go read that story. Even if you don't like zombies, I highly recommend it. Um, Best story anyway, in K you'll, you'll invest in tonight. It's, it's awesome. And if everybody used that same approach to Claudia being a tree with a zombie apocalypse or whatever, well, it could start to feel a little bit like you're, people are stealing her idea, but um, it would also be a it would start to become, let's say, 200 people then go out and approach this trope the same way, which is that. Um, there's a zombie apocalypse attached to this this tree Claudia thing. They're approaching the tree Claudia trope with a zombie apocalypse. Well, that would just start to feel like a cliche. It's like, really, you're going to go the cliche way of a zombie apocalypse? Really? Um, and that's how cliches develop, right? Is somebody, explore, somebody puts a trope out there, and it might be something new and original. And then a lot of people are inspired by that idea, and they all go and explore this trope. They include this trope, and they all explore it in basically the same way. And it starts to feel cliche. Um, there are tropes out there 
um, on TV. You know, are they going to go the cliche way? Is it going to be the secret twin thing? And we actually, Rebecca, my, my sister and I were watching a TV show the other day, and we looked at each other and we went, are they going to go the secret twin, the unknown twin? The, they were adopted, and they did. That's exactly what they went. That is a cliche, that's a cliche. It has gone from trope to a cliche way of dealing with this DNA problem with the secret twin. Um, but there's a distinct difference between a cliche and a trope. Now, some cliches we still find very satisfying, so we don't care that it's a cliche. It's like, I don't care how cliche it is. That's what I want, because that is what's going to satisfy me, is that cliche approach to this trope. Um, but in general, what you're trying to avoid are cliches, not tropes. So whoever's out there running around telling people that they shouldn't be using tropes in their work, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. Just shut that. the fuck up. And the next time, shut your if somebody tells you that, you know, do a, get, go get a timestamp on this podcast and send it to them so you can, they can hear me tell them to shut the fuck up. Because they really don't know what they're talking about. If someone sent me a story idea and said I've explored no tropes in this story, I would go, what the fuck you did liar. you write? <laughs> what is it, treatise <laughs> on paint samples? <laughs> Is this your dissertation? I thought read nonfiction as a rule. <laughs> I have plotted four Tree Claudia stories. None of them involve zombies. <laughs> I didn't make Claudia a tree, but I did make the tree my girl-styled tree baby. Which is, I would say, an exploration of the trope. Yeah, so, Claire, you trope creator. Being the mother of a trope, I think, probably sucks. <laughs> well, yeah, because can you imagine? I mean, there's that thing, that moment that for a while you're still very attached to it, and people are doing bad, bad things with your with your trope baby. <laughs> right? Like, oh my God! So, like, there what you. are you doing? Okay, so back to the how do we know, how do you know if you've got um, more than one story? Um, some of it does come from experience, but for a pantser, and I know that the person who asked the question does it pro is, is more pantser than plotter. Um, if you hit a really, if you're writing along and you hit a really high point in your story, it, I mean, it's hard to, Knowing up front can be really difficult if you're not a plotter. Um, if you don't have good, really good plotting skills, it can be very difficult to know that you've got more than one idea. I think there are a few hallmarks of that, but in when you're actually in the writing, if you hit a really high point and the action's coming down and your next plot point is going to start rising action again, you've probably hit a natural end. Um, but I mean, there's a lot. There's 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 so many things that factor into when should you stop. It, you know, things like, do you need to bring in a new character who has a prominent role, um, and they need a point of view. Uh, that could be a reason to start a new to to try to find a, an end and move on to another novel. Um, um, if you've got a bazillion subplots, I would not try to wrap that into one novel. 
you can lay found, but you can you you have a certain amount of subplots you can handle in one story. And if you've got a lot of stuff, you got to figure out how to space that out. And that's where something like episodes can be better than novels, is because you don't even have to worry quite as much with things being completely linear when you're doing the episode format. And what I mean by that, I'm not encouraging a bunch of time jumping. But if you need to focus on things that are happening in two places, like on one, two different planets or something, and they're happening kind of at the same time, if they're both kind of complicated, I would do that as two episodes, not try to interweave them. Like what I did with Sentinels of Atlantis when I had um, things happening on Earth and things happening on Atlantis. Um, the only time I really mixed up the content really heavily was during the search, which was my season finale. Um, otherwise, it would just be like a minor scene here or a minor scene there. Like at the end of The Queen, when Mika reached out on the psionic plane and David Shepard woke up on earth or like well, when, heavily interconnected. Right. And like when Patrick sat down in the chair in Antarctica and John caught it on Atlantis. Those are, um, those are very specific moments where they had to connect, but otherwise I kept them kind of separate. So I think that when you're, you just gotta be careful. Otherwise, you you don't want your you you don't want to drag your reader. You want your reader to kind of walk with you. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. Because you if you but if you've got if you've got like a couple POV characters that are on Earth and a couple POV characters that are in Pegasus, you I would probably unless they're really intermixing with each other, I would probably split those into separate episodes um, now one now a, 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 you know a different scenario would be where you've got one POV character on earth and one POV character on on in Pegasus or on Atlantis and they're they're both working towards a point of convergence where they converge and, and they, they're talking to one another like they're trying to dial the gate, trying to make contact or something, and you're going back and forth between John and and Jack's point of view, and you're seeing what's happening on Earth, and it ha- and, and it's the climax is when they finally make the connection. That's because they're both basically working on the same storyline. It's just two different locations. But if you've got distinctly different storylines, which is what she had in Sentinels, what Kier had in Sentinels in Atlantis. That's a good. That's a good case for splitting it into different episodes. Is because you've got very thematically and plot and character-wise very different stories happening in different locations, even if they're happening at the same time. Roughly splitting them into different episodes probably makes more sense than making your narrative a hot mess, trying to juggle disconnected story plots, different connected story, disconnected storylines. They might converge, and they probably will converge if it's part of the same series. They'll converge two or three episodes down the road. That doesn't help you when you're on episode two or three that you're trying to get to episode five or six. I lost my window. I hate that. I have too many things. There we go. I found it. Okay. <laughs> I found too many tabs. tabs. My tabs would be the last thing I opened. And... 
I would open things during the course of the chat and then lose it. So I thought I'm going to make my tab for the chat be the first thing. And I tried that like three podcasts in a row. And yes, I could always find it, but I always had to think about it. Where is it? Oh yeah. Um, I should just create a new window every time I we do a podcast, but whatever. I, I'm I'm old and set in my ways. So anyway. Uh, I, know. I still keep coming back to the whole, if you need a billion point of views, you need to figure out to break that up into short stories. Or, But honestly, this is a little bit off topic. I think it's worth sitting down and really thinking about what, what points of view you really need and what are your key points of view. And, yes, you can have three points of view in a, in a, in a novel-length story. You could do that. Um, but... Typically, two, one or two is, is is more typical. But like, if you're writing, if you're writing, if you're writing a romance and your romance is a threesome, three points of view makes absolute sense because it actually would be more jarring to have two points of view in a threesome and leave a third point of view out. That would be weird to me. You either if if you're having, if you're if you're main pairing, if you're main couple, if you're, not couple, but if you've got a threesome for your main grouping, your stories. Your story's, you know, main romantic partnership is a threesome. You you need one or three points of view, not two. So, I've I've a very strong opinion about that. <laughs> it's, it's that that's the thing, folks. One or three, that's what you get. Two points of view feels like you are. I don't know. It feels weird to me. It feels like one part par, one part is not as important in the story when you're leaving one person's point of view out. So anyway, um. If you're going to do a threesome, you either have to do all three points of view or only one. Yeah, exactly. So it's one or three. You can't have two. Um, but I, it, the big when, when I see stories that have ten points of view or five points of view, when you're writing an MCU story and every single character has a point of view, I don't get it. I do not get it. That is that is an artifact of, of fan fiction for the most part. It. It is something, and people read it, and for some reason they think it's a good idea, and they go off and do it themselves. It is not a good idea. It, aside from everything else, it is a pace killer. It murders the pace to change the point of view that often. But also the story is going to have no focus, none. And I have never read a story that had more than three points of view where I didn't like the pace suffered for it. Immensely. I think I wrote a story once that's really was epic length um, that had three points, more than three points of view. And I wish I hadn't done it. I mean, it was a mistake. I, you know, this is a live and learn thing, right? So I think, well, this seems to me like I have good reasons for putting in this extra point of view. It, but in the end, it didn't hold up. You know, it shouldn't have been there. So, um, There's nothing ever wrong with trying something, but you need to also be able to go back and look at what you've done and go, was that the right decision? So when it comes to um, the topic of the podcast, that novel length, I decided to go ahead and let Emergence be one, one giant epic novel. That was a mistake. I look back at that now and wish that I had made that three novels and not one. And actually, it probably would have told better from ep- in an episode format than it would have 
told in, a, in, a, in any kind learn. of novel format. I think yes, that and learn. when Unspeakable Plot eventually hits my website, that it, that it will be in episodes. Um, whereas I think Revenant, which is currently hosted on the Wild Hair Project, would actually be better served as a novel. I agree. That's something she's been keeping to herself for a while. (laughs) Yes, I am. (laughs) You should always tell me because I'll be like, yeah, okay, you're right, but I'm not changing it because I'm lazy. Or, yeah, that's yeah, you're right, I'll fix it. But yeah, I mean, we I've talked about it off and on for a while. And um Revenant um is just an idea that um the meat of it um uh I think it would be better and the emotional potency and content would be better served with a different pace. And one of the things that happens when you create episodes is that you create pockets of pace. You have discrete packages and your episode is a very discreet package. And when you have a heavy emotional arc, like Place and Revenant, it can create a disconnect um, if you're not careful. Like with, with Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, I told very long episodes so that I would not um, step on the emotional content. But I think that the episode format in Revenant um, did in a lot of ways, obliterate the emotional content. You can say what you think. I don't think it obliterated it. I won't cry. I'm going to obliterate <laughs> it. I know. I would say, I, I would say, one of the, I think one of the reasons I agree with you so strong is because it's not so much that it obliterated it, is I, I, every episode that I read, not every, almost every, I, I was left feeling unsettled and disquieted. Yeah. Um, like you're waiting like, for the other um, shoe to drop. It's going to be ugly and hideous, and then it never comes. Over and over yeah. again, all through every episode, you're waiting for something nasty to happen. And I had that same sense of foreboding. And I think it does boil down to the um, the emotional arc. Because John feels... Um, disconnected. Well, it's it is heavy what he goes through, and and I a certain level of disconnect makes sense, and then you know the, that sort of that that merger they go through. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just kept there's something the the arc of a novel, um, the point of the climax falling action thing is, and I think often the more the more punch there is. I mean, deep, heavy emotional punch in the climax of something. Um, that's where you really need a little bit more falling action to catch your breath and not feel like you've been kind of shoved, like literally off a cliff. Um, a lot of romance novels end on sex. You know, like the climax is there's some event that occurs that leads to sex, and that's the climax. And it's it's not a big deal to to have very you know steep to no falling action. It's like a paragraph and you're done. One and done. Okay, we had sex. It's over. But I, that wasn't Revenant. Revenant was. No. I, I thought I was always left teetering, like every every episode practically off a cliff, and it was like right. Like, it's very nerve wracking. I, I, 
it, it was. It, it was a sense of, like, wow, this is good, but do I want to watch the next episode and keep feeling That's the one. Like, do I want to watch the next episode and keep feeling like this? Is it going to keep doing it? I've watched TV shows like that. really, really nervous for the rest of the year. I can't handle it. But, yeah, I do think that if um, it was – and also I need to open up the POV and explore Rodney's point of view. Um, I think that would balance out the emotional content and give um, some depth that's missing. But a lot of times you don't know um, going into a project um, whether it should be serial um, or you think that it should be, and then you get in it and – then know that that really isn't serving the idea. So, you know, you make a decision out the front. Sometimes um, you don't know you've, you've screwed the pooch. Are we supposed to not say that? <laughs> didn't didn't Lady Holder put a stop to that? <laughs> she put didn't it? Lady Holder put a thing to that? She said, no, no more screwing the pooch. <laughs> or was it as? I don't remember. Somebody said we couldn't say it anymore. Um, poor pooch, yeah. Um, it's a, you don't know you fucked up until you fucked up. You know? So And the thing is this happens it's not like this doesn't happen to me all the time. It's just that you guys only know it happens when it happens on rough trade. <laughs> um Right. Yeah. I plot works and get into them and go, Oh no, that was a bad idea. Um, and what, for whatever reason, whether it's the wrong format, the wrong point of view, the wrong point of view can ruin an idea. Um, I think point of view mechanics. If I had to pick a single thing outside me, outside of some other, you know, this there are some people who just really they clearly don't know anything actually about story construction. Okay, so but aside from the very very basics of stringing words together into sentences, I think one of the most the thing that fan fiction writers really should pay attention to is, the, is their point of view dynamics. I find it so odd at times in fan fiction with lots of points of view, wrong point of view. I'm like the most boring possible point of view. I'm like all the interesting stuff is happening with that character on the other side of the room. Why are we in this guy's head? Um, and it's not just on a scene-by-scene scene thing. It's like the character where all the interesting stuff is happening to is the character whose point of view you're never in. It's like, well, well I, don't know, I don't get it. Um, so picking the right – and I've, I've, had, I've had stories that stalled out of a point of view where I just kept starting in the wrong point of view. I was like, now I'll try this point of view. I'll try that point of view. No, 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 no that doesn't work. Nothing, and nothing was working. Um, and, yes, your main characters should – be your point of view characters um, but if the story isn't working from your, one of your, any of your main characters point of view you need to um, reassess your story because it should work from your main characters point of view anyway um, but so there's, just, there's so much stuff about point of view that is I think so vital to um and I struggled with that. In this, I don't know if I mentioned this in that podcast a couple of weeks ago, a week ago, that I really struggled when I got started with um, Century because of writing in Steve's point of view. I felt like that based upon the plot, the two characters whose point of view I needed to explore were Tony and Steve. And I was really struggling with writing in Steve's point of view. But I didn't feel like 
changing that was the right thing to do. So I had to figure out what my issue was and get it fixed because the right point of view, and I still believe this, was Steve's, but I wasn't feeling it. And that actually came down to an issue of characterization that I had to fix because that's why I was having a hard time writing his point of view is because I hadn't set the character up well for me to be comfortable with it. So I think Kira might be off researching something. I'm here. I'm here. I was, I was thinking, um, continue. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking, I was thinking about Revenant. I I, kind of threw myself a little bit, you know, so that, you know, that happens when you have a, when you have a creative mind. Sometimes your brain just goes where it goes. Uh, but do look, when you're trying to, that is one thing I think that for fantasy fiction writers, where, where I was going with that, there's an underdeveloped aspect of how to assess where to break their story, whether it's a novel, novella, short stories, episodes, whatever it is you're going to do, is, um, is you, look, at, look, at, look at your POV, POV mechanics. If you're stalling out in your story, because you can't really bring in another POV and have it feel natural, it's time to it, – it, that's where you want to look at, do I want a sequel instead and change the point of view, bring in this other significant point of view in the sequel, which will change the dynamic completely. It will feel like it's very different if you're putting in a new point of view. But really you do not want to put in 80,000 words and you're going with two characters and then all of a sudden add a third. It is strange. Worse is you've got 80,000 you know, words from one character's point of view and you suddenly insert a new character. Um, if you really need that, what you really want to do is is start another story Over. and figure out right. how to make that happen. And if this point of view is a factor in deciding where you're going to, it, there's so many factors in deciding where you're going to split things. Um, you don't want <laughs> you don't want the the ultimate climax of your story to be a lower climax than an event that happened earlier. It will just feel like a letdown. So if you think you're writing a 90K novel and there's this really big moment around 40,000 words and your, your ultimate climax, the big climax of the story, 80,000 words in, 85,000 words in, is lower in intensity than what happened at 30,000 words, you've made a mistake. Because you don't want... There's, there's a reason why climaxes happen towards the end. <laughs> Everything feels like, and you don't want your big moment to feel less than something that was happening in your rising action. So if, if both those moments need to exist the way they are, make it two books. You've got two big peaks, make it two books. Especially if that's the last one. It has less punch than the first one. I always find that so bizarre when I'm reading something and there's this incredible moment a third of the way in and then whatever happens after never reaches that same height. It just, even if the rest of the story isn't blah, it will feel blah. That's the way you'll kind of internalize. You'll internalize it that way. You'll kind of go, it was good, but the end was kind of meh. But if they had split that into two novels and given you a, a resolution 
kind of wrapped things up from that first big moment, and then you had a new novel, it's like, ooh, a new story, and you're not using that first novel as, it's not part of the same pace, it's not part of the same arc, and you get into it, and then you've got this climax, and you're like, yes, that was wonderful. Well, it's wonderful on its own. It was a letdown compared to that first big moment. So, um, I'm trying to think of what other factors you would look at. Um, I, I do want there's there's a question and um in the chat room and I'll address it. We got five minutes. We got about six minutes left. Um, Rogue asks about the plagiarism situation, and no, I have not heard from um, the archive in question since I sent them my proof document. Um, that asshole story is still up, still moderating comments. Um, I don't think she's updated. I should go check um, to see if she's stolen from anybody else. Uh, so, no, it's, you know, you would think that an operation run by authors would be much more proactive when it comes to plagiarism. Especially a story that had so many plagiarism complaints that you can't complain about it anymore. And it involves six different authors. But that's just me. I'm not bitter. Bitter will be after the new year when I put it on my dream wit and start bitching about it in super public places instead of just on Facebook. What is wrong with people? I don't, um, I don't, I find this author to be so terrible. Because she not only has she, like, stolen my words and stolen the words of other authors, she's also hijacked my plot. She took words out of Birth of the Serpent King and plot points from War Mages. How the fuck does that work? But anyway, um, and I have no idea how many other plots she might have stolen because I didn't actually read the other works. I just did a plagiarism check through Grammarly, which was fantastic, by the way. Um, it gave me links and everything. That was some it slick shit. really good about that. Yeah. Um, and I was like, and then she's over in her comment section claiming to have never read my work. When she's got a paragraph that is very unique with a unique plot point, word for word, straight from Birth of the Serpent King. She just changed the name of the little bracelet. She stole yep. Minion, guys. She stole Minion. Um, and and changed his name. I would be less insulted if she hadn't changed his name. How dare you rename my original character, you bitch? <laughs> How dare you? And, I, and you're the I find, fun I'm, kind of bitch, too. <laughs> I'm just, I'm super, super annoyed at, at the archive for failing to deal with this. Super annoyed because it should not. It should not. It. Really? Well, they. Um, it's no secret that they're not particularly. Um, 
people involved with that organization don't particularly like me. I mean, they run FanLore, and <laughs> you've seen my bio on FanLore. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, some, sometimes people who write on – anybody can sign up to write an update on FanLore. So it doesn't mean that, that the people who run the archive wrote your bio. Yeah, they could have, but – They've never um, um, agreed to a change. Yeah, but it's yeah. not just because let's, just, let's say they have a hate on for you and they don't want to deal with it because they have a hate on for you, which I just find to be beyond. It's probably appalling. not true, but I wasn't particularly. There's a lot um, of authors involved. I didn't expect there to be um, response to me. I just didn't expect it. <clears throat> uh, there, but there's there are, there are quite a few authors involved, so I don't get why they're not dealing with it. Um, they're basically it feels like they're just green lighting plagiarism like oh yeah sure go ahead and go do that it's not a problem we don't mind but yeah I mean it is what it is and um, I'll continue to bitch about it and I'll continue I'll continue to complain and um, I'm sure the other authors that are involved will too I mean my work got the most stolen from it um and maybe 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 a sentence or there here or there doesn't upset some people but it fucking upsets me it's just so shoddy yeah if it was a single arguably plagiarized sentence in an entire story it is possible okay folks it is possible i've seen people say oh this person took this to me and i'm like Oh, shit. Bye. This is is too distinct for it to be coincidence. Bye, folks. Good night. (laughs) 